Hey everyone, it's Jeff. I hope you are off to a great start in this new year. I am so excited about the guests that we have lined up for the podcast this coming year. Unfortunately though, my dad recently passed away and as a result, I've decided to take a short sabbatical from the podcast. In the meantime, I'm going to replay some of my favorite episodes from the past two and a half years. Today's replay episode was recorded about a year ago with an exceptional business leader, Xavier Naval. Xavier wrote a book I really enjoyed reading called The Lettuce Diaries, which is all about his leadership trials and tribulations and successes, being a Frenchman expatriate to China and starting a food processing company that went on to be one of the largest food distributors in China. But before I replay this episode, I'd like to just talk to you briefly about the new year. As you move into this new year, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic? I've learned over the course of my career that one of the things that helps improve optimism and excitement and provide hope about a new year ahead is the opportunity to pause and just to reflect on what could be in the year ahead. It's a great time for goal setting. And as you think about setting your goals for the year, whether they're personal or professional goals, I'd like to offer some suggestions based on the learnings I've had over my career. First of all, be sure to start with vision. So one of the biggest mistakes that people make and organizations make when setting goals is they don't begin with looking at their vision and their core values. And so what do I mean by vision? Whether you're talking about your personal vision statement or the vision statement of your company or organization, the concepts are the same. It's really about playing the movie forward. What is your desired or preferred future? What does your success look like over a long time frame? What are one, two, or three sentences that describe how you're going to have a positive impact on your employees, your customers, vendors, your stakeholders, and of course, your shareholders? Is your vision statement inspirational and something that people can rally around? Is it pragmatic and, as we like to say, actionable, so you'll know when you've achieved it? It's only when you pay close attention to your vision when you're creating your goals that you can achieve alignment. And the same is true for core values. And when you talk about core values, what behaviors do you value most? And in what ways do you see those values playing a part in achieving your goals? So those are the first two. Begin with the end in mind by thinking about your vision and your values. And then when you create goals, you'll be sure to get on the train that's going in the right direction. The second thing to pay attention to is not setting too many goals. I've seen so many instances where people will set 10, 15, even 20 different goals. And what happens in that case? Everything becomes nothing. So you dilute the overall impact of any one goal and then things become very difficult to manage and keep track of. So wherever there's commonality among different goals, try to consolidate them. That's going to be a better practice. 
You know, my nephew happens to be the winemaker at Brand Winery, which makes exceptional wines in the Napa Valley. And if he gave me a glass of Cabernet, it's second to none. But if I were to take a glass of Trader Joe's Two Buck Chuck and pour that into my beautiful Cabernet, it's not going to taste so good anymore. And so this is what I mean with setting too many goals. You end up with something that's really mediocre. The other thing I'd like to share is that when you're creating your goals, perfection is the enemy of great. Don't be so worried about really trying to make sure that the goal you set today is exactly what is going to be achieved a year from now. Make them fluid. Allow them to be changeable. Life moves fast. Things need to change. Projects get canceled. New customers arrive that are larger than you can handle. So flexibility is the key with goal setting. The next tip is to be aware of any dependencies that exist with your goals. If you set goals and you're dependent on someone else to accomplish a milestone in order for you to complete your goal, make sure you have good communication with that person and that that dependency is not something that's so large it has the potential of derailing your goal achievement. And lastly, after you set your goals, give yourself the best odds for achieving them. I'm amazed at how many people set their goals, but then they don't follow practices that really allow them to accomplish those objectives. And so a study that I love was done by Gail Matthews at Dominican University. And essentially, she took a look at the various actions of people that set goals and correlated those actions to a goal achievement success rate. So how often were they accomplishing their goals based on the behaviors that they were engaged in? What she found is that the participants in her study, when they did not write down their goals, they just thought about them, they accomplished 43% of them on average. When they wrote down their goals and all the steps required to accomplish their goals, they went up to 51% when they wrote down their goals and the action steps, and then they verbally committed to one or more people what they were going to achieve. Their success went up to 64%, and the highest performing group wrote down their goals, all of the milestones or steps required to achieve each goal. They sat down and verbally committed what they were going to accomplish to one or more people. And then they regularly had to check in with progress reports, which built accountability into their lifespan of each goal. And that group accomplished 76% of their goals, which is actually quite high, especially when you compare that to the objectives and key results methodology or the OKR methodology, which would state that if you're accomplishing 70 to 80% of what you set out to, you're doing quite well. So following those tips is going to give you the best odds to accomplishing your objectives. So before we replay Xavier's episode, keep in mind that as you move through this year, your ability to achieve your goals is really restricted to how well you are caring for yourself. Is your life balanced? Are you taking time for yourself? Are you putting your oxygen mask on first before helping others? If you can do these things, not only will you accomplish more, 
but you'll also feel more fulfilled in your life and your work. So I wish you the best, and I'll look forward to reconnecting with you after this short sabbatical. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the various episodes I've selected for a replay. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Human Capital Podcast. I'm Jeff Hunt. As we start the new year, I'd like to give a shout out to the Goalspan team who produces this show every other week. And a special thanks to Francisco Ortiz. Our show would not happen without all your hard work. So thank you. If you've listened to many episodes of my show, you'll know that I believe effective leadership is at the core of making our workplaces more human. On today's episode, you'll see that being a leader is not for the faint of heart. In fact, if done well, leadership requires a number of ingredients, things like fierce tenacity or grit, compassion, humility, and the willingness to actually admit when you don't have the answers. Today, I get to speak to an exceptional leader who embodies these characteristics, in my opinion. I met my guest, Xavier Neville, through a CEO book club that I'm a member of. Xavier is the author of a book we discussed in our group called The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold Growing Vegetables in China. (laughs) Gotta love the title. My fellow CEOs and I could so relate to many of Xavier's experiences in the book, so I invited him to share some of those on my show. His story is really about managing a Chinese team as a foreigner, trying to work with Chinese farmers to improve how they conducted agriculture, all the while navigating investor demands. Uh, Okay, full disclosure. So if you aspire to become a CEO, you may want to not actually read this book. (laughs) Of course, I'm, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but one of the things I loved about Xavier's book is his descriptions were very clear about the realities of what it took to run and grow his company and the number of times he was living on the edge, so to speak. And for a lot of people, this would sort of make them rethink their desire to be in the hot seat. Xavier's business experiences in China were vastly different than what is typical in most Western companies. And this is true from both a cultural and a leadership context. And what I'm most interested in, which we'll talk about today, is which leadership principles apply universally, regardless of country or industry. And so this should make for a good episode. A little bit more about Xavier. He was the founder and CEO of the Creative Food Group, which is a key supplier to major restaurant chains in China, like McDonald's, KFC, and Starbucks. He grew that company to what is now an organization with nine factories serving 6,500 restaurants a day and over 150 million in revenue. Since his exit from Creative Food, Xavier has been principal at Vision Management Consultants and he works on numerous strategy and M&A projects in the food sector for multinationals in China and he's also an executive coach. He's located near me here in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area, and he allocates his time between here and China, as COVID allows, of course. Welcome, Xavier. Thank you very much, Jeff, uh, for this glowing introduction. I look forward to a great conversation. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I want to point out, I'm, I'm trying to pronounce your name correctly because you're originally from France. And in France, if, I believe, if I'm correct, 
your name is pronounced Xavier, and here in the U.S., we pronounce it Xavier. Am I right? <laughs> your pronunciation is perfect. <laughs> Excellent. I want to jump in because your book tells the story beautifully, but I'd love it if you would give our listeners the backstory on your journey from France to China and how you ultimately became the CEO of a large food producer there. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I came to China in 97 and, and left in 2015 to come to the Bay Area. So I spent nearly 20 years um, in China. And uh, I never really wanted to go to China in particular. Uh, I was a finance executive in a large multinational called Compass Catering that was doing all the staff canteens around the world. And um, I wanted an adventure. I wanted to see the world. And uh, when there was an opportunity to become CFO of their China business, I raised my hand and, and I, I was sent as an expatriate in China. I thought it would be just for two years. It ended up being much longer. Uh, I am... Um, I started as a CFO and to pay the bills, we, we had this large central kitchen that was not really useful to make meals for Chinese workers. So we started to cook um, on, on site on our clients' premises to have fresher food, nicer food and better customer satisfaction. And, and I had this big empty kitchen and I, I had to find some use for it. So I started to cut vegetable for KFC at the time to put in the, you know, the shredded lettuce that goes into the burger. Yes. And that's what became creative food um, down the road. And uh, that's what became the, the $150 million business that you described uh, today. So I, I, it's a short introduction, but that, that's the way I studied. An expat that came to China and, um, and turned, despite his own um, instinct, into an entrepreneur. <laughs> that's amazing. And if I understand it correctly, you didn't know the language when you showed up, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I didn't know the language. I was dressing like a corporate executive in Paris. I had this, my, my, my Hermes tie and my beautiful wingtip shoes. And I had no idea that I would end up in the fields of China and supervising Chinese farmers. And so I'm really interested in this concept and I want to unpack it with you because it obviously over time you changed the way that you managed and led people in that organization and your approach. And I was actually thinking before our episode, I, want, I would like to coin a new term that I'm going to call the superhero savior syndrome. <laughs> and my definition of this is when business, Western business leaders go into less developed nations with the pretense that they can import success oftentimes problems actually result. And it might look something like they are attempting to insert leadership practices that worked in the West or process disciplines that have worked. Do you feel like this is a real thing? Is this something that you experienced? And if so, can you speak about that? Oh yeah, I mean, you're completely right. Uh, it's, uh, there was a lot of arrogance in me when I came in. I just did not realize that I was arrogant. I said I had this beautiful suit and and I was, uh, I was an executive from a multinational. And I, I thought that I knew what needed to be done to succeed in business. And, and that I was there to evangelize the Chinese about the benefit of, of uh, food safety and, and convenience. Uh, you know, I, the, the back salad categories, the, the back salads that you buy in your supermarket, it's a relatively young category uh, in the US. It started 
in the late 90s, roughly at the time when I moved to China. And I thought I would bring that category that is now a $10 billion category in the US um, uh, to, to the Chinese and give them this benefit of convenience and, and, and safe foods. And I was completely wrong. Uh, I, I did not take into account this, um, this very big country. When you think of China, you have to think of America time four. And, and uh, I was reading uh, just this morning that uh, China has been adding 60 million middle-class members to, to its country every year for the past uh, 10 years. So it's, it's just amazing. From the time when I arrived in China to the time when, um, uh, to today, uh, you've got a middle class of 600 million people that has been essentially formed in China. And these are people who have their own aspiration. They have their own cultural context, their own background. They do things in a different way. And I just came in thinking that I would educate them. And I see a lot of foreigners doing this. Um, arriving in a foreign country and thinking that because we've been successful elsewhere, we're going to be successful in this country. So that, that's one thing I, I, I describe in the book and, and how, how I, I got hurt you know, um, and, and in a painful way uh, by, 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 by adopting that kind of thinking. What were some of the first telltale signs that helped you understand your need for change and what you needed to do different, differently? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I think I was not very smart because it took me probably three years until uh, when the company got on the verge of bankruptcy to realize that, that I was doing it all wrong, that I had a group. So I, I let go of all the expatriates that were working for me. And, and you know, for, for three years, I was working in China, but all the people reporting to me spoke English. They, they were sophisticated American uh, executives and and I, I had a false understanding of what was happening. When the company was on the verge of bankruptcy, I let go of everybody. And I find myself with this small group of young Chinese executives who were not very articulate in English because the English was not that good. Um, and they, even in Chinese, they were not very articulate because that's not what Chinese education system teaches you. Uh, my kids here in the US system, they, from, from grade one, you've got show and tell. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to be a public speaker in America. And uh, in China, it's not the case. It's, it's a lot of cramming, a lot of uh, rote memory exercises. So people did not know how to express themselves. And, and I had to slowly, completely change my mindset and become much more humble about what I did not know. And it happened not because I made a conscious choice about it, just because I had no other choice. The company was nearly bankrupt. And I sat down in front of these people and I said, for the past three years, I've essentially failed to do my job and I need help. And guess what? People stepped up and people offered their help. And, and that's one of the big lessons that you probably want to unpack a bit more uh, during our conversation is that when you ask for help and you're not behaving like a superhero savior, as you describe, right. people do step up and they do help. It's just counterintuitive. Definitely. And so sort of the opposite of this question, are there, do you feel like there are certain common leadership principles that did work well that you would say are universal regardless of, of, of country, culture, company, industry, sector? Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the point. Uh, whatever I did in China applied in the Chinese context in a different culture, I had no choice. You know, I, I didn't know that culture, I didn't know that country, but I really believe that whatever I did 
which at the time was not intentional, um, can be done in a more intentional way here in the US. Um, I think that uh, teams are increasingly diverse. You can't assume that people think like you do. Uh, environments are becoming increasingly com complicated. Things are moving faster. And as a CEO, the idea that you can be a, a pattern, a general pattern type of leader, an omniscient type of leader is completely false. And unfortunately, the literature, the business magazine tend to convey that kind of message, not in an open way, but this idea that success is linear. This idea that, the, you know, you look at Elon Musk, story and you're saying okay i, I want to be elon musk that guy had a vision he executed and guess what i've talked to one of the investors of elon musk in tesla early on uh, and he she, she told me that there was one weekend where the company was essentially bust and it's one of the investor meeting the his dentist who shared the, the bad news and his dentist says you know i know i know these people at toyota and maybe they're also a patient of mine, the general manager of Toyota. Maybe I can connect you. And in the end, Toyota invested and saved Tesla. And guess what? Nobody talks about that. Um, and, and when you say that the book makes you feel uncomfortable because of all the ups and downs, that's exactly what I wanted to convey is that you, it's nice to eat the sausage, but you don't want to eat, you don't want to know how that sausage is made. It's a lot of, uh, of, of challenges and you've got to be ready for that. And if there is one lesson to, to draw from what I did is that I wasn't exceptional and I'm certainly not exceptional, but I refused to fail. And all along, I refused to fail. I made lots of mistakes. I asked for lots of help from incredible people. And, uh, and at the end, I figured it out and, and succeeded in the end. So if there's principles that you want to draw from that, and if I had to do it intentionally today, I would say one, start with a humble mindset. Accept that you don't know you know, shut down this voice in your head that tells you that you're an imposter because you don't have the answers to everything, you know. So just be humble and people will sense it and you will increase the engagement. Second is build a shared context. And what do I mean about that is create a culture in the company. You know, at the time I was a financier, I was pretty soft on the aspects of vision and purpose and 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 corporate values. I thought this was all HR talk and it was not meaningful. If I had to do it again, I would spend 80% of my time building these three uh, elements of the culture. So building that shared context, because when you have complex trade-off and rivalries within your leadership team, it's really important to be able to bring them back to that shared context that we all agreed on. And, and that makes them more willing to accept the decisions that you're going to make as a leader. The third one is have a clear strategic direction. So, you know, people tend to quickly get confused. As a CEO, you get a lot of information, you make trade-offs all the time, and you tend to forget that your team is not, um, doesn't have access to as much information as you have. And from their point of view, they may, they may think that you're tiptoeing or changing direction or changing course or repeating constantly the direction and explaining why you're doing things that makes a lot of sense. The fourth thing is create a culture of accountability. Um, and that's very important because it, it balances out that humble mindset that I talk about. Being humble doesn't mean being weak or being everybody's friend. You still, you're still the boss and you still need to hold people accountable. You still need to terminate people and fire people. You just do it in a different way. And the last one is 
have a mechanisms in the organization, call it whatever you want, meeting rhythm uh, to synchronize. Uh, it's just incredible when companies grow fast, uh, people start to build their own empires everywhere. And leaders of different departments, I had an organization with 1,500 people in, across nine factories. When people start to, to, to build empires, then it's, it's, it's over. So you need to, to constantly remind the department leaders that they're not acting as representative of their department uh, on the executive committee. They are acting as a member of that particular leadership team. And when they go back to their, to their department, they have to advocate for whatever has been discussed and not undermine the decisions that have been made here. So I guess the, the five points would be a humble mindset, a, a clear culture, a shared context. The third one would be a clear strategic direction that is repeated again and again and again. The fourth one is a culture of accountability. And the fifth one would be this um, element of synchro- synchronization that I just described. It seems like everything is underscored by your ability to communicate effectively. So if you're not doing that well, regardless, you're, you're going to be in trouble. So even if you have a clear and compelling vision and purpose, and uh, if you're not communicating that well, you're going to lose people and you will end up with silos, correct? Yeah. And, and you know, the research shows that uh, leaders need to have like essentially four qualities and none of the leaders have them four we have maybe one or two. One is uh, sense-making. So you're able to see patterns in your environment to, de- to, to design strategies. Another one is vision. It's about the ability to create images that will inspire people, as you just said. But that's the, that's the Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, everything store. You know, n- nobody understood what he meant when he said everything stores. Um, the third one is this idea that uh, uh, you need to be able to relate, as you said, to communicate this vision to people. And the fourth one is inventing. It's when there is hurdles, when there is problem, you come up with creative solutions. And again, you know, I was not very good at inventing because I didn't understand the operating context in China, but I was good at sense making and and at relating. But then I had to find other people who were better than me at the other two. So thinking about some of your experiences. What motivated you to persist through such tremendous odds, especially because you, and it's very clearly articulated in your book, you had so many points along the way where there was uncertainty about the future of the business and whether you're going to make it. It was going back to investors and you were trying to raise more capital and making the business case and and then dealing with things like, you know, trying to keep the product quality in check and things like that. So what really motivated you, Xavier, to continue and persist despite those odds? Uh, call me naive, but I had this vision that I would, uh, I would provide a business model that allows the hundreds of thousands of farmers that were indirectly working for me to make a better living. And I, I stuck to that vision and I, I never wavered. When I wavered, my wife lit a fire under me. <laughs> and she said, you're not resigning, you're not leaving. And, and you'll see, I mean, you'll see in the book that there, there were times where people tried to push me out. And, and I considered that it would be an easier way to leave the company than to stay on. Uh, so I, it was never really a consideration. I would say that probably because I didn't have the experience. I didn't know what, ex, what was expecting me. And, and as a result, I was 
overly optimistic. <laughs> so <laughs> if, I had, if I had to do, do it again, I'm not sure I would have the, the courage to do that. But the, the vision is what helped me. And the second element is the loyalty toward the people who trusted me with their own money. So there, were, there, there was a group of shareholders who gave me their money. I just could not imagine a situation where I would look at myself in the mirror and say, you just walked away and let them hanging dry. You're in China. It's not easy to find another guy who's going to run that business. So I think the, the combination of the two, we all come from, we, in the West, we tend to come from a Judeo-Christian background, maybe the guilt uh, <laughs> paid off. But that's, uh, that's, what, I, that's what drove me uh, at the time. So one of the things that struck me in your book was commonly found among leaders, and it's the challenge around people, hiring the right people, firing the wrong people, and really the timing. And I'm wondering if you can share any of your experiences around that, about hiring, getting the right people on the bus in the right positions, and then when somebody's not working out, making a change. Yeah, and yeah, that, that's, that's a very important point. And I did not do it very well, to be honest with you. I, I was not very intentional about it. I, I, I hired people, fired people. I hired people because they came from big multinationals and they had a big title. And I thought I was really lucky to hire somebody who had been VP marketing of Colgate or Kraft in China. Um, and I fired people in a haphazard way uh, every time I, I, was, uh, I was underperforming financially. I had to fire a lot of people. So uh, looking back, um, I guess the one mistake I did um, when I grew the business is underestimating these elements of culture that I talked about before. Um, I hired these people coming from multinational, not realizing that they would bring their own culture. And you know, somebody comes from Colgate, somebody comes from Kraft, they think they know it all. They think that your your tiny little company needs to change. And they bring their culture. And if you're not vigilant as a, as a leader, then all the people who built that culture that is, that is there, but not expressed or reinforced regularly by you as a leader, and these people start to feel betrayed because they see all these middle managers who come in and build new culture and they dilute your culture. And these people leave. And these people are fundamental. They're the rock on which you build your business. If they start to leave, then you're starting again from zero. Because guess what? The guy coming from the multinational is going to quickly get frustrated with your small company mentality. And he might leave. And then you have nobody else. So this balance, so the, the way you, you want to do that is repeat again and again and again um, what your core values are, what your vision is, what your purpose is. And especially... I mean, repeat because research shows that if you don't say it seven times, people don't think you're serious about it. So you want to repeat it to the point where people are rolling their eyes. Um, it must sound nearly fake because you're repeating it so much. But more real is the way you, you use your culture to make decisions and, um, and uh, give context to the decision. So I'll give you an example. You, you'll, say, you'll say, I'll terminate you uh, you know, could be issues of productivity, but mainly it's because you don't meet the core value of the business. And then you'll announce to your executive team that you terminated that person because he's in breach of the core values of that business. And I mean, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, was saying that when his business had seven people, 
just uh, at the beginning, he fired two people who made up 50% of the company's sales because he realized that they were paying bribes to the customer in order, in order to get the business. And he said, if I start like that, that's going to be like a cancer. That's in total breach of the core value. You're in a country where bribes are more common than in the US. huh? So the fact that he did that set the tone from day one. So I would say that you know, terminating people, being very vigilant when you recruit people that they meet your company core value through a series of interviews is, is fundamental. And so that they, because it's very expensive and time consuming to bring people, train them and then let them go. And the second is to not hesitate to terminate people for other reasons than productivity, for their, their, their inability to buy in the company vision, to, follow, to, to further the company purpose, or to meet or live the company values. Well, I love your examples, and it makes takes me back to the superhero savior syndrome, which I mentioned in the beginning, and basically... I think that's applicable. Every organization is vulnerable to that, especially when we bring in outsiders. I think we have to be so cautious and careful to make sure that those, when we're hiring a competency, so we don't have, we don't have that internal competency, so we bring it in from the outside. It's so critical to make sure that these people are a cultural fit. They can embody our core values. They can live them out. They do have that essence of humility. So if they're coming in with all the answers, then we're going to have a train wreck on our hands potentially. So wouldn't you say? Yeah, and, and what you and you do that by doing long interviews. Um, sometimes we're afraid of we're always in a rush to hire people because we need them fast, and we're afraid of taking them through multiple rounds of interviews. So the way I did it is I I did long interviews, digging into the because people especially in China, people got really good over the years at staging themselves um, in a resume, in their interviews. So I did it by, by really trying to pick details that would indicate that their core values are aligned uh, with our company core values. And then what I did also is that I involved the rest of the leadership team in the interviews and asked them to do the same thing, um, to constantly dig, find example. So you did this and you were successful at this project, but you left the company. So what happened? And, and then suddenly the guy is going to say, well, you know, my boss was a, was a prick and I went behind his back and I, I complained about the manager and, and whatever. And, and, you, and you realize that he's doing things that would never, never be acceptable uh, in, in this company. Xavier, what are some things that you underestimated regarding your own abilities as a leader? I guess I, I underestimated how fast I could just let people go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm a nice guy. I don't like to terminate people. Um, but I've, le- I've, I've learned that over the years, I've, I've fired a lot of people and I've learned to do it in a very, um, in a very constructive way uh, because uh, I guess the, the dependent of this humble side that you describe is that you're still the boss. You still have to hold people accountable. And the way I convinced myself that I had to terminate people is that it's not fair for the rest of the organization if these people stay on board. And too often as a CEO, you spend way too much time and energy and emotional um, energy on trying to fix the, the wrong players. I'm not saying the bad players. They're the wrong players. They may be a good fit somewhere else. And, and it's unfair because... Day in, day out, your team is dealing with them and their incompetence, and they have to fill the gap. 
So I guess that back in 2007, I had sold the company to a multinational already. I was running the company for four years. I ran it for four years. So the company that, that bought me was based in London. They were listed in London. The financial crisis hit and suddenly all the cash flows that were coming from London to support the development of China stopped. All the banks ring fence the company in the UK and they said, you're getting no money. And, and I remember they were telling me at the time, they were telling me at the time, we're going to fix it. We're going to figure out the thing and we're going to refinance and hold, hold steady. Don't fire anybody. We don't want our strategy in China to be affected. Guess what? I had been through that too many times before. And I fired 40% of, um, of, the, of the organization, the overheads, and essentially went back to the early days of me running, uh, everybody having five or six different hats and, and running the, the organization for cash. Three months later, they still had not refinanced anything. And they were so grateful that I was able to meet all the financial covenant because the banks became ruthless at the time. So I surprised myself in that sense because all the mistakes I had done paid off at that moment when I had to quickly made, make a decision and, and, and very quickly reduce the size of the organization. So I don't know if it answers your question, but that's what comes to mind. That's a great story. I appreciate that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you think about all these things that we're involved with in business and how much time and effort and, and emotional energy that they take. But I know some of the things you shared in your book were about your personal experiences and how that regrounded you on what was really important in life. And I'm wondering if you want to share anything about that. When I sold the business and, and, I, and after I left the business, I just did not see, there was this assumption in everybody's mind that I was a serial entrepreneur and I would do it again. And I was just done. I, I didn't have the energy to do it again. And, and my idea of, of you know, I, I had done relatively uh, well financially by selling the business. I had two healthy kids and I had a loving wife and I had a good life, but I thought it was too symmetric. And I said, uh, my next adventure is not going to be a new business. And I just did not know what it would be. And it happened that I came across a little girl uh, who was abandoned and adopted her. And that was my adventure. She had lots of severe health problems and, uh, and I took her around the world to, to, to see the best doctor. So the, the lesson from that is that despite my success, I was not ready to do a, another adventure. And I, I felt that it, there was more meaning in helping others than in doing it again uh, myself. And in my activity today as, a, as an advisor and coach, that's a bit what drives me. Uh, I think I can have a bigger impact across a large number of entrepreneurs who themselves build large organization than trying to do another business myself. Makes sense. Let's shift to some lightning round questions, very easy questions. And you give me top of mind answers. The first one is what are you most grateful for? Waking up every day next to my loving wife. <laughs> What's the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? Accepting that I don't have to know it all, but I have to learn it all. Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Alan Mulally, the former CEO of Boeing and Ford. He's my, he's my reference in terms of vulnerable leadership. He's the kind of guy who, who turned around giant organization with entrenched cultures and and he did it in a humble way, always nice, um, uh, but he got things done. 
Do you have a top book recommendation? On China, I would, I would recommend Factory Girls, which is an amazing book by Leslie Chang, who was a page one Wall Street Journal reporter, who took the, the opposite side of what the media at the time, at the time the media were describing Chinese factory workers as quasi-slaves and exploited by their, um, uh, by their owners. And she described a group of young women coming from villages and finding purpose in their independent life and growing and learning and changing jobs every time they did not like a company. And uh, she, that's, that's a remarkably well-written book and very instructive. In general about uh, leadership, I, um, I like the uh, 10 lessons of uh, conscious leadership. Uh, I think this is, uh, this is something that I refer again and again, this idea of being above the line or below the line. When I feel that the world is against me and nobody understands me, I go back and I say, you gotta move from that victim stage. One of the things that you talk about is the complete leader in your coaching, I believe. Yes. Can you say a little bit about what the complete leader is or looks like before we wrap up? Yeah, so the complete leader, in, in my view, is the one who accepts that he's incomplete. That's, that's, that's the first premise. And, and he's got five attributes. He's humble. He creates a, a strong culture, a shared context that I described. He creates a clear direction, a clear strategy. He creates uh, elements of accountability and, and, and five, uh, a rhythm of communication with his team so that people are, are clear. So he's leveraging his team and creating a context so that people get much more engaged than they normally are. Just a reference, research shows that most people say they only give 30 to 40% of their emotions and energy at work. So the complete leader basically brings that from 30 to 90% by creating a shared context and engaging people and stretching them and giving them meaning for what they do every day. So that's, uh, and I've got, I've built an assessment around that so that with my client, what I do is I, I go through the different parts and, and, uh, and we identify where he's strong and, or and where she's a bit weaker. And that gives us um, a list of tasks to work on. To, to improve. Perfect. Where can people find you, by the way? So uh, I'm based in Oakland, California, and as I've, I've got a, a website called uh, xavier-neville.com, and you, you can contact me, make an appointment. I'm always happy to have a, a half an hour conversation, take people through the complete leader assessment and, and identify whether there's a way to work together. Perfect. And just as a reminder, Xavier's book is called The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold Growing Vegetables in China. And Xavier, I've really appreciated our conversation and the wisdom that you've shared with our listeners today. Thank you very much, Jenf. Uh, that was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.